0: Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is an early stage, diversity-focused venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. Thank you for following our journey. And now on to the podcast.
1: Crypto, NFTs, and decentralized finance are the buzzwords these days. Many believe the world of crypto will change everything. At the same time, respected investors and institutions remain speculative. I'm your host, Lizbeth Nunez, a fall intern at Harlem Capital. In our Crypto Convo series, we'll be talking to investors and innovators who have found great opportunity amongst the uncertainty. In this episode, we're joined by Sarah Hammer, Managing Director of the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance and Senior Director of the Harris Alternative Investments Program at the Wharton School. She previously served as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions and Director of the Office of Financial Institutions Policy at the United States Department of the Treasury. Listen in to hear Sarah and I discuss blockchain, financial regulation, and the launch of Wharton's new blockchain accelerator. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, and thank
0: you for joining us on the Harlem Capital Podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: It's so great to have you on. You're very well known for your work at the University of Pennsylvania, and you have an impressive background in the financial sector, but would love to kick us off by getting to know a little bit more about Sarah. Where did you grow up, and what do you love about the community that you grew up in?
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, and for saying that I uh, am so glad to be part of the Penn community. I'll just mention to your audience that I graduated from both Wharton and Penn Law School. And so Penn is a a big part of my life, Um, but I come from the Midwest actually. I was born in Asia, in South Korea, and then grew up in Minnesota in a very small town called Oak Grove outside of Minneapolis. And it was a great place to grow up. Great schools, great people. I would say one thing I really loved about it was just the connections between people in the community and the opportunity to get to know people and support each other. And I've found the same thing out here on the East Coast. So I'm, I'm so lucky to have that.
1: I grew up on the East Coast. So it's always fun meeting people from the Midwest.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we like to think that we... Um, are friendly. I think that's something that definitely characterizes Minnesotans and certainly uh, Midwesterners generally. So it's, I I think you find that on the East Coast as well, but that's something that we pride ourselves on. Definitely. I think I've, I've noticed
1: that as well. You've worked in policy and regulation, and now you're helping lead alternative investments and a blockchain accelerator at Wharton. Regulation and the crypto space in many ways don't appear to be friends. How did someone with your background end up in the crypto space?
0: Sure, sure. That's a great point, Lizbeth. So my story is when I graduated from Wharton, I spent a good amount of time in trading and portfolio management. And one of the instruments that I traded was credit default swaps. And then I spent a couple of years at U.S. Treasury overseeing financial institutions policy before coming to Wharton. Uh, And so I think based on that experience, I really had a unique chance to see how the markets worked and what kind of financial infrastructure supports them. And everyone listening can probably recall that during the financial crisis of 2008 through 2009, that credit default swaps had a very unique role in that. They were certainly not seen as a friendly instrument They were highly unregulated. There was no central trading, no central clearing of credit default swaps. And that led to some of the problems that we experienced during the great financial crisis. There just wasn't insight into what was happening in the markets. So I, through that experience, became very interested in financial infrastructure. And with a legal background as well, examining the the regulatory side of that came naturally for me at US Treasury, one of the things I was really focused on was central clearing of different instruments like credit default swaps and even treasuries and repo, for example. So our financial system is interesting because what we see from the outside is sort of the fast activity of instruments being traded. And we assume that when we buy or sell something that that all ends quickly, but the reality is it can take up to two days for a trade to settle financially. And that's because we have this financial infrastructure, these entities that finalize our transactions on technology that's very old. So one of the things I became interested in is how can we make that better? And after the great financial crisis, It was very interesting because we put in place new requirements to have more central clearing and settlement of our trades, but we used old technology to do it. So it's sort of the perfect storm for someone like me who's very interested in regulation, very interested in how technology can modernize the way we do things. And it gave me the chance to really dive in and look at the regulations, look at where the risks lie and then think about how technology could be applied. So it's actually a perfect candidate for blockchain um, and in crypto, uh, for crypto more generally because there are a lot of efficiencies that can be achieved by using this new technology to settle transactions like trading.
1: Crypto has been at the forefront of individual and institutional conversations over the last couple of years, but there's so much more to the blockchain technology that crypto is built on. How do you explain blockchain technology simply?
0: A lot of people are now working to try to understand blockchain. And what I always say is we're all sort of learning together. Um, It is an incredibly fast moving space. I think if you were thinking of it like baseball, we would still be in the first inning of this technology. It's not unlike the early stages of the internet. And so what blockchain is and what it can be are two very connected but different things. And so for anybody who feels a little bit intimidated by trying to understand the technology, I always say jump right in because we'll all be learning together, and it will take almost no time for you to be as up to speed as people who've been doing this full time. But um, blockchain is interesting because it's not a new technology. It's really a combination of proven technologies that are applied in a new way. So there's three sort of components to blockchain. One is what's called private key cryptography, which is used to secure the blockchain networks and establishes the identity of the user. The second is that blockchain employs a peer-to-peer network, so a system of record. And the third is that blockchain, um, all blockchains have what's known as a protocol or a program for their platform. So combining those three things together in a new way allows us to Write entries into a record of information and control how that information is updated. So it's a very interesting and unique technology and has many attributes that our centralized technological systems don't necessarily have. And, you know, a lot of folks who are listening are probably familiar with Bitcoin and have heard of Satoshi Nakamoto, but that is where blockchain technology originally came from. So Right around 2008, a paper appeared that was authored by a person or persons or an entity known as Satoshi Nakamoto. And that paper described how a peer-to-peer version of electronic cash could allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a central entity, without going through a traditional financial institution. And so this is the paper that led to the inception of Bitcoin and the technology that powers Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is this blockchain technology. So it's interesting because that is where blockchain came from. But today we recognize that blockchain technology can be used in many different ways, not just cryptocurrency, not just Bitcoin, but in in many other industries as well, including enterprise technology or even healthcare, because blockchain technology, because of the way it works, has many attributes that are attractive, like it's immutable, meaning that it's extremely difficult to change the record on a blockchain once it has been written due to the fact that each node on the blockchain is Uh, containing the same information. So all of those nodes would have to be changed simultaneously in order to change the system of record, which is extremely difficult to do. And then there are other very attractive attributes to blockchain as well. So it's, it's certainly becoming more and more used, and there are many exciting use cases across different industries. I was just chatting with one of our other professors at Penn today, who's working on a research project using blockchain to run a system where they determine efficiencies related to climate in different architectural designs. And so um, using this blockchain technology, they're able to take in data on climate efficiency and then award points and then make awards based on which buildings are the most efficient. So it's kind of very interesting. There's a lot happening in the space. It does
1: seem like we really are just starting to scratch the surface on what we can do with blockchain I know one of the things that has been important to you or exciting to you about blockchain is the financial inclusion aspect. How do you think this is providing more equity?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Elizabeth. And I have been, I am and have been very committed to issues around financial inclusion and DEI more broadly, um, that being a really important part of the work that we're doing at Wharton and at Penn. And one of the key issues that you may know of in our country and really around the world is financial inclusion. So we have a huge unbanked population in the United States, which surprises some people. We think that everyone has access to a bank account in the US, but the reality is many people don't because it's expensive and one has to have maybe minimum deposits and pay certain fees. But the traditional banking system doesn't work for many people. And around the world, there are countries where people don't have access to bank accounts or traditional bank accounts, but they may have access to a mobile phone, for example. And in some of those places, there are individuals um, living in countries where the national currency, the fiat currency is not necessarily reliable. One thing I think is interesting, and by no means do I think that crypto is a panacea for all problems, but it certainly has attributes that can make it attractive for financial transactions in different cases. And so one of those cases might be in a place like Africa, where some people might not have access to traditional banks, or for some reason they're shut out of the traditional financial system, or their country's fiat currency is unstable, they can use cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin to transact merely by having a mobile phone. And they can rely on that digital currency to um, receive payments for their business and to take care of their families. And they don't have to worry about the fees that a traditional bank might employ or, the political instability that comes with a national fiat currency. So here in the U.S., I think there's a different set of issues. One I mentioned already, which is the unbanked. And there is, unfortunately, also a large population in the U.S. that may not have access to broadband. So there's a technological barrier in the U.S. for some folks as well. And I think those are all issues um, that we're still thinking about as we think about things like crypto and whether we would employ a central bank digital currency, for example. So certainly there's a lot more work to do in that space. But I do think that crypto and blockchain can offer solutions related to financial inclusion that can move us forward a little bit.
1: It certainly, and and it does seem interesting as we think about these innovations, connecting people, sort of eliminating the fees and some of the political risk, but also weighing out that access to technology for different people, as well as the education barriers, is a lot of us are still learning about how crypto and blockchain works. Um, I think another major concern surrounding crypto is, is volatility. What do you think needs to happen for there to be less volatility in this space?
0: Right, that's a great question, Elizabeth, and certainly crypto is volatile. Um, you know, we've had days where the price of Bitcoin has gone up or down by more than 30%. That's just one example. There's a vast number, I think, at last count, more than 8,000 cryptocurrencies out there, you know, coins like Shiba Inu and um, different coins with different interesting names. Um, I think about the volatility in different ways, you know, as a trader and a portfolio manager, volatility is one characteristic of an instrument. It is not necessarily good or bad. I think the cases where volatility needs to be part of the consideration set is when one is thinking about investing in crypto. And that is why um, crypto may be an appropriate investment for some people or institutions, but it may not be appropriate for others. And that is part of a conversation really that anyone thinking about investment needs to have. So for example, if I'm an individual investor who's going to be investing for the next 40, 50 years, and I have discretionary income, then I may want to consider crypto in my portfolio, potentially, as a diversifying element in my portfolio. If I am retired, and I'm living off my 401k and my retirement income, and volatility could significantly deplete the amount of savings that I have to live on, then crypto might not be appropriate for me. So those are the kinds of things that I think we should get good at talking about. And the Securities Exchange Commission, you know, is very focused on investor protection in this space. And certainly legally, we have some issues to parse out there. But I think generally speaking, one just has to know crypto is volatile. I don't necessarily think it's going to become more stable. I think it depends on which particular cryptocurrency you're looking at. Um, we may have you know, central bank digital currencies that aren't as volatile. We may have major cryptocurrencies that become less volatile, but the volatility may also be attractive to some investors if they're looking for that in their portfolio as a diversifying factor.
1: Are there any other risks that you think constituents should be thinking about while they're participating in the crypto space right now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that anyone who is thinking about investing in crypto, whether it's an individual or an institution, an endowment and foundation or a pension fund, needs to be thinking about not only whether it's an appropriate asset for their portfolio in terms of volatility and potential return and all of that but just to be cognizant of investor protection considerations like if you're looking at the materials for a cryptocurrency and you there's a lot of hyperbole or a promise of unreasonable and excessive returns and you know there's certainly a lot of media hype around crypto and some of it's exciting and some of it is you know silly but I think that's the kind of thing that investors just need to be aware of. And um, as long as you know, folks are educating themselves, I feel we can continue to move forward on that front. So
1: let's talk a little bit about regulation. I know you've spoken extensively about this, and you have a lot of experience in it as well. One of the talks that I thought was rather interesting was when you spoke at the House Financial Services Subcommittee hearing on cryptocurrency, Um, I think that might have been earlier this year from a regulation perspective. What do you think needs to happen?
0: Right. So that's such an important question, Elizabeth, and and complicated, because there are so many things happening on crypto. I would say I am glad to see the attention being paid to crypto in the regulatory space. I think there is a broad recognition that it is part of the future of financial services. And so having appropriate and clear regulation is important. It's a priority. But, you know, there's differing opinions on what that should be. I think for folks who are getting to know the space, it's confusing, but important to understand that there are a lot of different ways that we are regulating crypto. And that may need to be clarified. You know, one of them is the securities regulatory regime, which I've mentioned, which protects investors. So what that means is if you're investing in crypto, if the crypto is defined as a security or registered as a security, then it's subject to investor protection rules like sufficient disclosures, for example, and no market manipulation. But we also touch on crypto in anti-money laundering rules, for example, and those have been the subject of ongoing debate as to how crypto wallops should be um, required to report to the Internal Revenue Service, for example. And then in the recent infrastructure bill, there was a huge debate about the treatment of crypto because you may have heard, and this was sort of front page in the Wall Street Journal, that crypto was actually one of the more controversial components of the infrastructure bill because under the current language of that bill, which is now law, the definition of a broker-dealer in the crypto space that needs to report to the Internal Revenue Service could potentially capture some of our blockchain protocols and our Bitcoin miners. And, and so, of course, one has to wonder, like, what is appropriate tax treatment of those entities? Who needs to report? And, and what's even feasible? Because some of those entities may not even have access to client data. so. On sort of the back end of things, you know we have banks and asset managers that are now dealing with crypto and have it as part of their infrastructure or they're clearing and settling trades on crypto. And so we will have a whole body of banking regulation and financial infrastructure regulation that should relate to crypto. So um, it's, it's a really broad and deep area. I think if I were to pick like a couple of things that are currently top of mind, one of them is stable coins. So a stable coin for the benefit of your listeners is a coin that is pegged to what's considered to be a more stable asset like the US dollar or a basket of assets. And stable coins like Tether, for example, are really prevalent throughout the crypto world now they're also used to clear and settle financial transactions. So if you make a payment or do a trade, there are now companies that are settling those trades in crypto rather than on traditional financial rails. And so I think the regulators are concerned about whether those stable coins are actually stable and how they will behave in a financial crisis. And I think part of the motivation for that is going back again to the great financial crisis. Um, we had what was called a run on money market funds where you know m- almost all of us have a money market fund in some form, meaning we put money into an account. It's managed by a mutual fund company. And we believe that if we put $100 into that account, we're going to get $100 out. But in a crisis, that type of instrument actually may not um redeem at $100. And that was a surprise to some folks during the, the last financial crisis. So I think the concern of the regulators is that stable coins might behave a bit like money market funds in that if there is a financial crisis, there might be a run on stable coins and it could lead to financial instability. So all of that is being studied now. And, and I'll, I'll let you know that I'm actually working on a research project in that space Um, looking at stable coins and the cycles of redemption and the rules around them and thinking about what the network effects would be in a a stressed financial situation. So that I would say stable coins is really top of mind. And then I think the tax treatment of crypto is gonna be important now that it is in the infrastructure law that will have to get ferreted out as it goes to regulation at the Internal Revenue Service and then money laundering, as I mentioned, is really important, and, and that'll be dealt with by Treasury, OFAC, and FinCEN. So there's there's certainly many interesting issues for a lawyer to work on in this space. Um, lots of interesting things to think about.
1: Yeah, and as investors, and I know, too, our, our founders in this space, we are on our toes uh, looking closely at regulation. Yeah. So, so thank you for sharing on that. Um, and. As a student right now at at Wharton doing my MBA, I've been watching closely Wharton's move in the crypto space or University of Pennsylvania as a whole. One of the exciting things was that some of the programs are now accepting crypto payments, but also another thing is the Cypher Accelerator, which you are leading up. Uh, What is it and who is eligible to apply?
0: Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm uh, really excited about the work we're doing at Penn and Wharton on crypto. And um, at the Steven Center in particular, our major initiative at the moment is the launch of Cypher Accelerator, which is our blockchain and crypto accelerator. And so we are in the midst of um, launching this world-class accelerator. We believe that by bringing to bear our resources at Wharton and our, our network and our expertise in finance and in infrastructure and our global connections that we can really help to scale the world's leading companies in crypto. And we have an incredible board of advisors working with us. Mark Cuban is one of our advisors and um, has been helping us immensely. Tim Draper also will be opening up our accelerator when we begin to run the program. And then we have partners from some of the world's leading venture capital firms, including Union Square Ventures, Bain Capital, Bessemer, Andreessen Horowitz, and QED, amongst others. So we have this incredible structure that we built for Cypher. And applications are currently open. And we will be selecting a small cohort of companies um, with high prospects to run through a program. And that program will include workshops focused specifically on crypto companies. So helping those founders develop their product, think about their go-to-market strategy, hire people, um, deal with marketing and refining their brand and navigating the regulatory network. And it's really amazing to see the resources that have come together. We have an incredible group of Um, folks who are working with us and incredible partners who all are so enthusiastic about what we're doing. And it's open to anyone anywhere in the world. So any founder anywhere in the world can apply to Cypher. We will run the first cohort virtually, but we will have some in-person events in various geographies so that folks will have the chance to meet each other if they would like to do that. So we've made the first cycle of this very flexible And I would just encourage everyone who's listening, who has a startup idea or who's already working with a startup to consider applying. We would certainly love to get to know you and work with you and help you grow your company.
1: I did hear you talk about the accelerator on a recent Wharton FinTech podcast, and you mentioned you wanted to make this the best in class crypto accelerator, which is a tall order. Mm -hmm. How does your team plan to accomplish that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Elizabeth. We certainly uh, plan to be the world's leading crypto accelerator and it's a combination of things. I think one of them is our advisors. We really believe that we have put together the world's leading thinkers on crypto to help us with this. Um, I think the other is our strength as Wharton because not only do we have leading expertise in finance in particular, which is crucial, in the crypto and blockchain space, but also we have global connections and access to incredible pen talent. And so what a lot of these companies are looking for, you may know is finding talent to help them grow their companies. At the same time that we are running Cypher, we're actually running a series of workshops um, through our blockchain fellowship program for students that want to work in the blockchain space. And so what we're doing is cultivating a pool of talent could then be recruited by a lot of these companies. We have actually an incredible group of mentors who are folks who have experience scaling and sometimes even selling their blockchain companies. So those are the folks that really know how to go from, say, two people to 200 people, and they will be mentoring on a day-to-day basis, really a weekly basis, the companies in our accelerator. And then we have an incredibly strong group of alumni supporters in the crypto space, all of whom are very committed to bringing us ideas and bringing us companies. And then, as I mentioned, our workshop series is gonna be fantastic. Um, It'll be very comprehensive. It will do deep dives in different areas of blockchain and crypto. And then it'll culminate in a demo day where all those great investors that I mentioned to you earlier will have the opportunity to look at these companies and potentially invest. So I think the way we're trying to be best in class is really to be outstanding across the board. And fortunately we have great people and and the resources to be able to do that. Very exciting.
1: Love your vision for this and that it's open beyond just the Penn community. Uh, I have some last lightning round questions for you. Um, sure. <laughs> you are very involved and very a very busy person, I would think. <laughs> what is your favorite productivity tool?
0: So I would say I use Slack a lot. Um, it's interesting because working with so many different people in so many different areas, I've come to use a ton of different tools. So I have to be proficient at using everything at this point. We use Slack a lot um, and our team is very interactive, but we also use Notion. And then I'm on like basically every app that's available. Like I use Telegram for communication. I use WhatsApp. I use WeChat for certain areas of the world. Um, So it's interesting. At one point I was, you know, of the thought that I should reduce the different ways that people could contact me. So there would be more streamlined, but I've just, kind of given in and been like, okay, this, the more the merrier, and it's all fine. It, I love what I do. So I love talking to people and, and, and I love the different productivity tools. Um, but Slack is what we use the most for sure. Great. And favorite restaurant in Philly. Um, let's see. I love so many restaurants in Philly. I would say up by Penn campus. I love the Greek lady. And I love um, White Dog. Um, we have work things sometimes at White Dog. Um, and um, in Center City, there's a couple of different places. Well, there's many different places actually, but probably up by Penn Campus, it's Greek Lady and White Dog and Louis Louis. I like Louis Louis. It's just, you know, a different type of restaurant.
1: Louis, Louis, is great. I also have to plug yeah. JJ Thai, great Thai food.
0: Um, oh, okay. I'm going to have to try that. They're great.
1: Very, that. very casual and, and great meal there. Um, who do you follow for all things crypto? Yes. Yeah, so
0: well, I follow our advisors. Um, I follow Mark Cuban. Absolutely. And I follow Tim Draper. And then I follow our partners, Um, and advisors on Cypher. I follow Nick Grossman from Square Ventures. Um, Chris Giancarlo is also on our board, and he is former chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and led the launch of the Bitcoin futures contract while he was chair of the CFTC. Chris actually just authored a book, Crypto Dad, which um, we have um, done an event with him, and he's been a great supporter of our work at Wharton and with Cypher. And then, you know, I follow folks like Elon Musk um, to see what's happening, what he's thinking um, and how things change pretty frequently in the crypto space. But primarily I'm following people who are advisors and, uh, and it's quite interesting, definitely very informative.
1: And speaking of following, how can people stay connected to what you're working on?
0: Yeah, great. So I really appreciate that question. So first and foremost, I would say check out our website, edu and then backslash accelerator. And you'll find a lot of information about what we're doing at the Stephen Center on blockchain and crypto and fintech more broadly, and then a lot of information on Cypher. And you can apply to Cypher through our website. We also um, are on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. And then Cypher has a new profile on LinkedIn. We're also on Twitter and our advisors, folks like Tim Draper um, or Raj Gokul at Solana, they actually tweet for us from time to time as well. I am not active on Twitter, so I'm certainly not interesting to follow on Twitter, but others in our sphere are as well. And our advisors are all you know active supporters of Cypher. So they, if you want to follow them, I'm sure that'll be interesting as well.
1: Wonderful. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. This conversation was very informative for me and I'm sure for our listeners as well. And I look forward to seeing
0: you on campus. Thank you so much, Lisbeth. Thank you for having me and I wish you all the best. I love your podcast and I'm happy to help with anything else uh, that I can help with. Just let me know.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more, subscribe to the More Equity podcast on Apple and Spotify. You won't want to miss the other episodes in our Crypto Convo series. To stay connected to all things Harlem Capital, be sure to also follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for learning along with us. Until next time.